0: Quit believing everything you got damn here, shit. Believe in yourself. I don't believe shit until shit happens. You know, no, no, I can't believe fucking kids. Everybody talking about kids. Everybody talking about how bad kids is. You know it's bad. But see, you can't say kids bad. I say it for you. These motherfuckers bad. I will fuck a kid up. Don't get mad at me. I'm just saying what you can't say. You feel the same goddamn way out here.
1: On March 19th, 2007, Bernie Mac, one of the original so-called kings of comedy on the stand-up circuit, who parlayed his trademark voice and swagger on the stage into a hugely successful television and film career, told David Letterman that he was planning to retire after finishing production on his latest film, The Whole Truth, Nothing But the Truth, So Help Me Mac, telling the legendary late night host, I'm going to put it in theaters and it's going to be 30 years for me and I'm going to call it. When pressed by Letterman, who acknowledged the toll of a life in show business, Max said, "'Oh man, you miss out on so much, you know, "'and you live in all these hotels. "'I was on the road 47 weeks out of the year. "'Comedy has been so good to me, "'and that's all I ever wanted.'" It was a shocking announcement because the 49-year-old was really at the top of his game, looking fit, healthy, and happier than ever. He'd just wrapped up a successful five-season run of his popular sitcom, The Bernie Mac Show, in 2006, and had several movies on tap for 2007, including Ocean's 13 and Transformers. And he was still delivering on the laughs with his bulging eyes and, well, rather unorthodox views on parenting, as in this appearance on Conan just a night later. You can't trust kids, Conan. What <laughs> <laughs> kind of
0: no, advice is no, no, no. that? I'm, I'm, I'm telling like a CIA. You can't trust can't kids. Can't trust them. You can't trust the, uh, the three-year-old is the girl, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and let, let them fight. Let, let them, them fight. Let them scuffle.
1: But you know, see, whenever they start to scuffle, uh, I thought
0: you're supposed to separate them and say don't when, when, do th-. When the wife come in. Yeah. When the wife come in. <laughs> you know, you, know, you let, them get, let them get it on, let them get it on. Then when mama come in, stop, 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 oh. stop, stop.
1: But despite all appearances, Bernie Mac's health was always a delicate issue, casting an ever-present and foreboding shadow over his life and career. He suffered from a disease known as sarcoidosis, which is essentially an autoimmune disease in which inflammatory cells form lumps of tissue typically in the lungs, skin, and lymph nodes that can impede breathing and other bodily functions. For Mac, the disease would flare up at times, turning common colds into serious illnesses that would land him in the hospital. His first major bout with the disease happened in the summer of 2004 during a particularly grueling stretch of work. He was filming both Ocean's 12 with a gaggle of A-listers and co-starring alongside Ashton Kutcher in Guess Who?, while simultaneously promoting his baseball movie, Mr. 3000, when he suddenly fell ill. Although scheduled to resume filming the remainder of the fourth season of the Bernie Mac show that October, Fox had to halt production for four weeks after Bernie contracted pneumonia in both lungs and needed time to recover. He eventually would recover, but the brush with his own mortality seemed to shake him up enough to start thinking about slowing down. Of course, slowing down is a relative concept for a consummate performer like Mac, who'd been tirelessly working in comedy clubs since the late 1970s, and only really found his footing in the entertainment industry in the 90s when he was already in his mid to late 30s. He knew the grind of comedy very well and understood how important it was to hustle and strike while the iron's hot, cashing in on what is usually just a fleeting moment of mainstream success. And with the disease essentially in remission after the 2004 health scare, Mac continued working, releasing three movies in 2005, filming three more scheduled to come out in 2007, and booking a handful of others to come out after that. Aside from the announcement on Letterman, it hardly looked like Bernie Mac was ready for retirement. Then, on July 19, 2008, Mac was admitted to Northwestern Memorial Hospital in his hometown of Chicago. With his immune system already compromised, Mac got a further infection that required further medication and eventually contracted pneumonia again. After about a week in the hospital, he was placed on a ventilator as the doctors tried to get his fever and breathing under control. His sister-in-law, Marianne Gossett, said, quote, he was critically ill when he was in the hospital. He was in intensive care the whole time. On July 31st, his wife, Rhonda McCullough, communicated with her husband for the last time, telling him, quote, I'm here, I'm waiting for you. I'll take care of you, just don't die, don't die, don't die. And on August 8th, Mac's sister looked at her brother, recalling that he opened his eyes briefly while she told him, don't leave me, I'm waiting for you to come back. She said Bernie just shrugged his shoulders, and that's when she knew he was tired of the fight. The next day, Mack's heart stopped while doctors tried to insert a feeding tube. And although doctors were able to resuscitate him once, his heart stopped again, and this time he wasn't able to make it back. Bernie Mack was just 50 years old. I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, Bernie Mack.
2: Although Mac's passing shocked the world, those closest to him always feared an outcome like this due to his battle with sarcoidosis. Although its causes are unknown, the condition disproportionately impacts black people and usually manifests between the ages of 20 and 50 years old. Those with the diagnosis face a 1 to 7% risk of death from the condition. Many people with the condition can recover fully through mild, over-the-counter anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen or even without any treatment at all. Others with more serious cases may be prescribed stronger steroids, like prednisone to help keep the inflammation under control. The pulmonary risks that include the kind of interstitial lung disease that led to Mac's bout of pneumonia, however, are much more serious, resulting in 122,000 deaths worldwide in 2015 alone. And Mack did his best to manage the disease, instituting strict protocols on his film and television sets to minimize the risks of getting sick and ending up in the hospital. Doug Williams, an actor who worked with Mac on The Bernie Mac Show, said Bernie was basically living a COVID lifestyle years before the pandemic.
0: So Bernie was living a COVID lifestyle before COVID hit because you had to be, when you came on that set, everything was sterilized. You couldn't shake his hand and they prepped you before you came. Don't don't shake his hand. Don't cough. Don't sneeze. If you have to do any of these things, you know, exit the set. So when I spoke to him. I asked him, when are you gonna do stand up again? And I remember him saying, I really would like to do it, but I can't take a chance of getting sick. A common cold takes me two, three weeks to get over and it could transition into something worse. So when I heard that he was in the hospital, I knew then how serious it was because he told me, if you ever hear me being sick or in the hospital, Chances are it's going to be a fight for me.
2: Even with such measures in place, however, film sets inevitably involve lots of interactions between various people, including actors, crew members and other personnel. The risk cannot be eliminated entirely, which is one of the reasons film and television sets shut down during the pandemic.
1: Jason, what's interesting about Bernie Mac is even though this came as a complete shock to us when he died of sarcoidosis, if you research what was going on in Bernie Mac's life, other people knew that he was extremely careful on his sets. He wouldn't interact with you. He didn't like shaking hands. He was, you know, sort of had a little bit of that Howie Mandel sort of nervousness about yep. germs, and people just thought of it as a, a quirk of his. But he's really trying to preserve his his health, so he didn't end up in the hospital with these massive bouts of pneumonia.
2: The longer we do this podcast, the more we come across people who have suffered from diseases, fatal, lethal diseases, fatal diseases, and wanted their best at, at to keep it under control, to keep it under wraps. They felt that, it, I'm sure, in many cases, that it would affect how the public perceived them. They didn't want the sympathy. And particularly comedians. comedians? They wanted to make
1: people laugh and feel comfortable, That's and not right. pity
2: you. That's right. We saw it in the case of Norm MacDonald, obviously, as somebody who, who kept his condition under wraps for a long time. Chadwick Bozeman, not a comedian, but simply was somebody who was... Who
1: is very shy, private. Uh, Wanted and, you to accept him and, in these roles as Black Panther, right. as, as James Brown, and it would be difficult if you knew he was, he was And there's not also business well.
2: reasons for it as well, right? Every time you go onto a film set, you have to be insured, and you buy, you know, f- film studios will buy insurance on large major motion, major motion pictures, because if the star can no longer perform, you basically, like in the case of Black Panther, you would have lost hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, and so you buy insurance. Now, insurers are not going to insure you if they believe there might be a very good reason why the Chad and McBoseman's of the world or, or somebody else might have to fall through. So there's these business reasons on top of it, but we're seeing it more and more, in, at the longer we do this podcast, that people are, they withhold this information from the public for, for very good reasons. You don't fault them for it. It's
1: exactly right. And when you and you really take a deep dive, you often learn that they are battling these conditions for a long period of yeah. time, as you said. In this particular case, unlike cancer, which befalls you at some point in your life, life this was a condition he lived he just with his lived entire with life yeah
2: in the immediate aftermath of his death his wife Rhonda was absolutely devastated the couple had been married for 31 years meeting first in high school and having a daughter Janice in 1978 Rhonda weathered the difficulties of being married to a stand-up comedian who spent many days on the road each year and they were finally beginning to enjoy the career successes Mac had over the last decade of his life she said quote my whole life was him since I was 16 I didn't know what I was going to do it's like, what is my reason for being here now? What is my purpose? How am I going to make it now?
1: Yeah, it's devastating to read the accounts from Rhonda, who was his wife through all of this. And you can imagine, he was struggling. He was a road comedian until his late 30s. They were
2: together from the time they were 16 years old. I mean, it's in the quote, she she just didn't know what to do with her life at that point. When you've wrapped up your entire adult life, and some of your adolescents too, in one person, when they, when they go, it's just devastating. It really was.
1: And his dreams were just coming to fruition late yeah. in life. So yeah. it was really, really tragic. A massive public memorial was held a week after his death at the House of Hope Church in Chicago, which gives you a sense of Mac's standing in the community and the comedy world. He was born and raised in Chicago. His mother, father and oldest brother all died before he graduated high school. And Mac worked a variety of odd jobs throughout the city from janitor to UPS agent to Wonder Bread delivery man before becoming a fixture in the comedy clubs in the 80s. And he never lost that connection with the city, and his memorial showed just how deep those roots were. Here's a fun fact about Bernie Mac. He sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch at Wrigley Field during Game 6 of the 2003 National League Championship Series, which many baseball fans remember as the Steve Bartman game. And some fans even jokingly blamed Bernie Mac for jinxing the Cubs because he, you know, sang it off key in his typical Bernie Mac kind of way from that from that luxury box. So so
2: the story is the Cubs were on the verge of of clinching the National League pennant for the first time in 100 years or something like that. And then Bernie Mac sings the 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 favorite son of Chicago, sings it. And then everything falls apart in the in the next inning.
1: Yeah. So obviously in jest, but it is it is a fun piece of trivia about Bernie Mac. The Chicago mayor, Richard M. Daley, attended the memorial along with nearly 7,000 people from in and around the city. Just a massive outpouring of grief and a tribute to this great comedian. Movie stars and comedy legends also paid their respects, including Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Don Cheadle, Ashton Kutcher, who had been in a movie with him, many of the cast members from The Bernie Mac Show, and of course, his fellow alums from Kings of Comedy, Steve Harvey, D.L. Hughley, and Cedric the Entertainer. Steve Harvey, who, like Mac, was already an established comedian in his 40s by the time Kings of Comedy came out in 2000, gave an emotional but still hilarious eulogy at the memorial.
0: It was it was such a big thing for all of us, the Kings of Comedy. Um, Bernie ran what we call the anchor leg. He was our closer. You know, in a relay, you give it. Stick to the next dude and you get a baton to the next dude and you say the fastest cat for last just in case you get behind Every night we handed that mic to B-Man Because no matter how funny the three of us was Bernie had something else for him (laughs) Man (laughs) Nobody wanted to follow Bernie Mac Because he was just
1: too much All four of these guys catapulted to huge fame, Jason. I remember when Kings of Comedy came out, and it was a sensation. All of these guys were known in the comedy world, but then became large, large figures. Uh, But there was always a really special connection between Steve Harvey and Bernie Mac, because they bookended the show. You had the opener, and Steve Harvey, to this day, is still kind of an MC. He's a game show host, because he set the stage for all of the other comedians, and he did that on the original Kings of Comedy. And, you know, Bernie Mac was the closer. You know, he would come in and he had this like killer act where you didn't want to follow him. Neither Cedric the Entertainer or D.L. Hughley wanted to come after Bernie Mac because he just slayed you and there were no laughs left. He, he, his entire style of
2: comedy was was one of uber confidence. Right. You he, he heard at the top when he was doing the the stuff about he was saying about kids and what it's like to raise. He, he, he was somebody was sort of. You uh, know, undeterred by societal convention. He said whatever he wanted to say. It's hard to come after those guys. You it know, really is. Cedric and other people, they're, they're a little more sort of family friendly. They're a little more playing to the audience. He was just get up there and be hilarious and off color and say things that other people didn't want to say. A Little Chapelle in him in that way. Yeah,
1: and he had that perfect persona where yeah. he could say outlandish things, but he was never mean-spirited. Right. He didn't sound mean-spirited, even though the things he said about parenting are pretty awful by today's standards, but you didn't take him seriously. You you, you saw him as this paternal figure and right. D.L. And Hughley and Cedric, the entertainer who were a little bit younger than Steve and, and Bernie Mac also seemed to look up to those two guys. Right. And it was a very, very special bond between all four of them that carried on into, into later in their career. We'll go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back more on Bernie Mac's legacy. If you're shopping
2: while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, So download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's Rakuten.
0: R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
2: Bernie Mac didn't just burst onto the scene as a young phenom. His success was the result of many, many years of grinding on the stand-up circuit and slowly developing his voice. If there's one moment to point to as a genesis of his rise to fame, it would be when he appeared on HBO's Deaf Comedy Jam in 1992. He followed Martin Lawrence, by that point a big star, and by all accounts it was an incredibly hostile audience that night. Rather than shrink from the moment, the then 35-year-old Mac took the stage and immediately won them over.
0: I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. I'm going to tell you something straight off the motherfucking press. I ain't coming for no foolishness. And New York, goddamn it, y'all motherfucking women look good. Y'all like a bigger and egg sandwich look good. But I love sex. I love it. Can't do shit no more. And I'm blessed.
2: <laughs> he turned in six minutes of pure brilliance, leaving to raucous applause and never really looked back from there. Mack earned a reputation for absolutely killing on stage, so much so that Kevin Hart would later tell Howard Stern that nobody wanted to follow him.
0: Bernie is the comic that's nationally known as the guy that you never wanted to follow. There was not a audience or room that Bernie Mac did not destroy, and by destroy, yeah. the laugh. There was no laughter left. <laughs> there, there's nothing left. He he so took, true he took everything that a crowd had to give. There is nothing left. So going after Bernie, you may get laughs, but it's not the laughs that we just heard that these people are capable of
2: giving. From there, he would open up for huge musical acts and comedians: Dionne Warwick, Red Fox, Natalie Cole, and others and started to pick up small roles in movies like Uncle Vester in House Party 3 and Pastor Cleaver in Ice Cube's Friday. Mac's first starring role came in 1998's The Players Club when he played a fast-talking club owner named Dollar Bill.
0: I just don't think it's fair that you charge me 25% interest on the money that you loan me when you already take 30% out of my check. You know, I ain't got no G-stringing and I ain't out there making no tips, you know. What was this a stripping game, partner? Who you waiting not to? All you do is spin record. That's all you do. Who do you think he is? DJ Quick? No, huh? No, I say Kick and free I didn't say Huh? That. Oh, you must be Jimmy Walker. <laughs> you ain't nothing. You don't deserve nothing. You don't get nothing. You get what I give you. I got a contract between me and you that say you do what I tell you to do. Therefore, shut the fuck. Don't say nothing. Don't speak to me. Don't look at me.
2: Even opposite a rising star like Jamie Foxx, he absolutely steals every scene he's in with his inimitable voice, cadence, and facial expressions. Whatever else is going on in the scene, you're always drawn to Mac who is hilarious and menacing throughout the movie.
1: And this is saying a lot because Jamie Foxx is a screen presence of the great presence, actors of our time, man. right? Yes, exactly. but they're in scenes together, and Jamie Foxx is playing a more muted role in in Players Club, so I don't want to say it like he blows him off the screen, but you're just drawn to him, and Bernie Mac always sort right. of steals whatever. This leads
2: up to, to Ocean's Eleven, right, where he's on stage with the greatest actors of our generation, and... He has never out-acted in any, in any scene,
1: ever. Yeah, you're just drawn to him. And his massive breakout would fittingly come through his stand-up performances, specifically the 2000 release of the original Kings of Comedy, which I've mentioned. This was a Spike Lee movie. It followed Steve Harvey, Dale Hughley, Cedric the Entertainer, and Bernie Mac as they performed in front of a live audience at the Bojangles Coliseum in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, I want to delve into this. The routines are all very, very different. Each comedian offers their take on black culture, race relations, religion, sex, and family. And Mac, as I mentioned, is the closer, and he's probably the most autobiographical of the four of them. He weaves between bits about his decreased sex drive because he's entering middle age. There's an extended routine about raising his sister's children when she went to a drug treatment facility. And that included his classic milk and cookies story.
0: Now I'm telling your short ass, he can't handle no goddamn milk cookies. Get your poker up there before you get fucked up around here. Or she gonna look at me like I'm short, you know. No, no, can I. Everybody in this room know what that look mean. That look mean you wanna do something to me. So back backed up. Latola, bust a move.
1: This part about his sort of hard-nosed style of child rearing would eventually become his signature, and he'd often talk about his willingness to quote, fuck up a kid on talk shows, but he pulled it off so deftly. Jason, I I say it and it's even hard to say, fuck up a kid and not laugh because of the way he delivered that. And he's, he's not talking about really beating them up. He's just talking about being a strict parent and seeing sort of the, the styles of parenting move away from that.
2: Yeah, I don't even know it's so much of a parenting style as much as like his relationship with children is that they're pains in the asses and he doesn't really have time to put up with them. And, yeah. you know, you and I have kids and they're pains in the asses a lot of the time, but we put up with them and we do, you know, deal with all of it. He's like, I, I don't play those games and I'm willing to fuck up a kid. It's so funny, yeah, because he's <laughs>
1: taking you th- through but a, he's a pretty kidding. dark thought, but By all kidding.
2: indication, he's one of the sweetest guys ever. And, you know, he's just joking. It's jokes are for comedy. And he, and does he pulls them off. Better. He yeah, exactly. gets away with
1: it. Exactly. So the movie ends up grossing around $38 million. It had just a $3 million budget. It ranked as the second highest grossing film in his in the opening weekend, only behind The Cell, which was a big budget sci-fi thriller with Jennifer Lopez. To give you a sense, this is a stand-up comedy movie, and it's number two at the box office. Oh, so it thir- was a sensation. 13 to 1 box office over uh, cost is pretty over budget is pretty
2: impressive. Pretty I don't impressive. don't see that very often. Absolutely. So Mac would end up parlaying his fame from the original Kings of Comedy into a significant film and television career. In 2001, Fox greenlit his sitcom The Bernie Mac Show, which was loosely based on stories in his stand-up routine about raising his sister's kids. Mac would brilliantly adapt and parody real stories from his life, often breaking the fourth wall to speak directly to the audience and highlight his comedic take on domestic issues. The show also expertly buffed down some of the rougher-than-less PC elements of his routine into family-friendly fare suitable for network television without ever losing the essence of Mac's comedic voice and rhythm, as in this scene in which he gives advice to his young nephew about defending himself against some bullies.
0: Now listen, the first thing you need to know about defending yourself is to avoid a fight in the first place. And what I mean by that, man, if somebody started picking on you, you got to show you can take it. You got to come right back and start picking on them. How do I do that? Well, um, you can start by insulting their mama, <laughs> What if I don't know his mama? We're talking about universal mamas here, Jordan. It applies to all mamas. You got to be inventive. It's all gone now, Jordan. So if you start hitting on somebody, mama, you got to hit them when it hurt. Go for the juggler. If their mama's fat, you got to say something like, your mama's so fat, I poured a half a cup of water in the bathtub, and when she set out, it overflowed. <laughs> Uncle Bernie, ask me. What if I like his mama? You don't know his mama, Jordan. How you gonna like somebody you don't know? What if his mama's dead? His mama being dead ain't got nothing to do with it. What you think about mama dead for?
2: The show ran for five seasons and garnered Mac two Emmy Award nominations for
1: Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series. You know he had huge television success. The Bernie Mac Show was very big. It parlayed that whole parenting style into a network show, and he was also able to move into some leading roles in film projects. Uh, Guess Who was a very big one. It was sort of a a takeoff of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is obviously a a classic movie from the 1960s. And
2: people who are not into comedians, not into the comic circle, didn't watch this kind of stuff, didn't watch, you know, Last Kings of Comedy... uh, they, they. this was a, their first introduction to, uh, to Bernie Mac. He was obviously opposite a big, you know, Caucasian star, let's call it what it is, yep. right? Which introduced him to a different audience altogether, which again leads up to the uh, the Oceans movie, which you we'll get to in just a second.
1: It's so true, and it showed in Guess Who and Mr. 3000, a baseball movie, that he could translate what is a very crude act and an yeah. R-rated t- style of yeah. comedy into something that's palatable. So right. he really did have a career. But his most memorable performances came in supporting parts, such as Frank Catton in all three Oceans movies, and the head of security in Bad Santa alongside Billy Bob Thornton and the late great John Ritter. Here he is explaining to the mall manager played by John Ritter how he couldn't find any dirt on Thornton's Santa Claus that could give them a reason to fire him. This, I always mention this, I mentioned it in the John Ritter podcast as well. It's one of my favorite holiday movies of all time, so I simply had to include a clip.
0: Well, it's fucked. Yeah? Yeah. Fucked, frankly. He's... There's a fucking whistle. Nothing. No. Oh. Nothing. I mean, shit. Yeah. He curses. Yeah? But never around children. Oh. No criminal record. Yeah. No parking tickets, for Christ's sake. Nothing. No bad habits, even. Oh. Sex, yeah. But man is a sexual being. Yeah. Fucking Darwinian. Oh. Can't do shit about that, Jack. No. Hell, I wouldn't want to. No, of course not.
1: I'm not advocating celibacy.
0: Hope not. They've been in the end of fucking human
1: race. Yeah. You know, Jason, it's been more than 15 years since Bernie Mac passed away, but his comedic legacy remains strong through television shows, his movies, and of course, from the surviving members of the original Kings of Comedy. Although Steve Harvey spoke movingly about Bernie Mac during his eulogy, the speech came from a place of mutual respect for their craft of comedy. The two men, as I mentioned, were born in the same year, and they truly felt like equals during that tour. Cedric Lee Entertainer and D.L. Hughley were the young upstarts, each around six to seven years younger than the other two men, and you could hear the differences in their brand of comedy. It also created this paternal dynamic, and the men, particularly Hughley, really looked up to Bernie Mac as a mentor and a role model in the comedy world. And so I wanted to give Hughley the final word when he spoke about what Bernie Mac represented to him at that formative time in his career.
0: The hardest thing for a black man to do is to be an individual is to stand on your own and to say what you mean and to not be influenced by anybody, to make your own mind up and your own way. And Bernie Mac was a man, believe me when I tell you. He stood on his own, he said what he believed. He used to always say, I don't care if you like me, I like me. He said, I walk alone all the time. I'ma tell you like a T.I. is. I've I've never been more influenced by another comedian, and I'm more proud of him not not for the things that he did on stage, but truly for the man he was. And I'll say this, I'm sad because um, I never got a chance to tell him how much I loved him. But if you love somebody, you make sure you tell them here. Thank you now.